And we are live from Infinia ML. I am James Kotecki. This is Machine Meets World. My guest today, very excited about this guest, the chief technology correspondent from Axios and the author of the free daily newsletter, Login, all about technology. Please welcome Ina Freed. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, James. Great to be here. I said, please welcome, as if there was going to be like an applause sound effect or something. I'm going to have to figure out how to add that in later. Well, you know, that's um, like late night TV these days. You know, they're exactly. doing the same thing. Exactly. We're all trying to figure this out. I see you've got some Legos behind you. So obviously we're both at home and we both talked before this interview that we both have our kids in the next room, I think, doing some schoolwork. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. Um, thanks for doing this. Uh, you are the chief technology correspondent from Axios. Let's start broad with technology. Why are you interested in technology? Why do you like it? Well, you know, early on in my career, 20 plus years ago, I was like, you know, I could have written about anything and I enjoy courts and the legal process, but, you know, anything that people are passionate about. I think what makes technology extra interesting to cover is, you know, all the ways that it changes everyone's life. And really, you know, for a long time now, it's it's sort of trendy, if you will, to say, I don't want to just cover the technology, but also the impact it's having on people's lives, how it's changing how we live, that sort of uh, the status quo right now, that's what everyone who covers tech says they're doing. That's always been where my passion lies is, you know, there's so much change happening and it can be good. A lot of it is good. We've made incredible progress in my lifetime, but it isn't inherently good. Like we have to ask the question of, is this something we want more of or less of? Because the tech industry is just going to do it because it can. And how does that fit into the overall scope of what Axios is trying to do? Axios is kind of a unique, singular voice in the world of media, and it has some very strong philosophical ideas about how things should be covered. And obviously, it doesn't just cover tech, right? There's politics, there's other kinds of news that you guys cover, there's science, there's... I don't know if you guys do sports yet, but it seems like you might get there. We do. We have How a does, great sports newsletter. Oh, you do. Newsletter. You do. You do. Um, obviously, I'm not as much of a sports fan, so I apologize. But in terms of tech, how does that fit into the overall Axios philosophy? You know, I think we approach tech the way we approach everything else, which is we want to have a subject matter expert and a team that really knows what, what they're talking about, but really telling the rest of our audience, here's what really matters. Here's what you need to know. Our, our mantra, our tagline is smart brevity. Um, the idea that, you know, we can get people smarter, faster. Um, and we apply that, as you say, we cover politics is probably what we're best known for, but science, health, sports, space, cities, all of our subject matter experts. Um, the idea is to really take that broad knowledge, but not use it to do long-winded essays about it, but really to, to be a filter, uh, to help people understand uh, here's what you really need to know. Here's the thing that we're going to be talking about a, a week or a month or a year from now. Um, and I joined really early, not not quite before we launched, but right after, within a couple of weeks after we launched in 2017. And it's been an incredibly fun ride. And how much does your personal viewpoint, how much is your personal viewpoint allowed to influence your coverage? Um, is that even the right way to ask that question, so to speak? You mentioned some concerns about technology and what it might do if left unchecked. Obviously, that's showing a little bit of, I don't want to say bias, but certainly a lot of opinion in terms of how these things are covered. Yeah, I mean, I would say that's probably the line right there. I mean, certainly, uh, as one of the subject matter experts, we probably get more leeway. But again, our, our role isn't necessarily to take sides in the debate, but it is to be an informed uh, presenter of it, if you will. So it's not to simply present all ideas as if 
they have equal merit. You know, I try and if I'm covering, you know, the Apple versus Fortnite creator Epic lawsuit, I'm not saying Apple's great or Epic's great, but I am bringing all my knowledge of both companies, the broader ecosystem, the long debate over app stores. Um, so we try and apply that to all of our things. Uh, our founders, uh, who I know you know, uh, Jim Van High and Mike Allen, you know, very big on, you know, not, we don't have an editorial page. We're not a left-leaning blog or a right-leaning blog. We try and present things, um, I don't want to say down the middle, because not every issue is equal. Again, not every issue is objectively open for debate. And I think to me, and we may get into this, that's really what's changed a lot in recent years is it seems like, you know, basic science is up for debate. And it's really hard to uh, present things neutrally when, you know, things that are matters of scientific consensus are presented as if there are multiple beliefs, uh, multiple truths, uh, you know, and it's everything from climate change to some of the things that are closer to home uh, in technology. Let's talk about some of those maybe divisive issues around AI, if we could. I mean, sure. these are some of the these are some issues that I think it's just fascinating to me how fundamentally different certain very smart, very wealthy, very powerful people in technology are. Some people say that you know we're some Elon Musk says we're like summoning the demon when we talk about getting uh, too advanced in terms of AI. Other people like Zuckerberg are saying that's not necessarily a concern. And obviously, these are hugely vested people have a hugely vested interest in making those points because of what they want their companies to do and how they want them to grow so how do you see some of the ai issues fitting into these broader tech issues you're talking about well let's start with elon musk and then we can get broader from there i mean i find that hysterical and i generally bring this up and uh, would push my colleagues to do the same and push myself to do a better job but look you know the tesla is filled with algorithms it's filled with ai like so the idea that Elon Musk is anti-AI, he's against certain things. He's warning us of things that we should be paying attention to. I don't disagree that we should definitely be paying attention to um, what we're doing in AI and what we're teaching our algorithms today and what decisions we're giving them control over. At the same time, I think it's incredibly remiss not to point out, you know, a self-driving car is machine learning on wheels. I mean, that is all algorithms. It's not sitting there you know, waiting for a human to tell it that would be a car. <laughs> a self-driving car is by its nature filled with AI. So, um, you know, I think, uh, I think there are important points. I think, you know, I generally agree with the idea that we need to be extremely skeptical of where we hand over decision-making power. That said, you know, there's huge potential in machine learning. Machines can simulate things way more um, then we can, you know, as we went to look for potential virus compounds uh, to treat the coronavirus, you know, one of the things that machine learning did early on is like try out, you know, everything in the kitchen sink in simulation. That's a really good thing. Um, I wouldn't want to trust AI to decide which virus candidate, which vaccine candidate we go with. That I want human scientists doing. I wouldn't want an algorithm deciding when to reopen schools. Um, but I do want an algorithm and I do want machine learning looking at, you know, what are the best scenarios? How how does the virus, do we think the virus travels inside a confined space? Um, so I think it's often not a yes or no, but a how question we, of in terms of when and how we use machine learning and AI and algorithms. 
to extend the self-driving car metaphor a bit, the, the, the companies that you often write about, some of these giants in tech, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, et cetera, that is really where the rubber meets the road. That is where the applied science of data science and AI and machine learning actually gets implemented in a way that impacts everyone's lives. Do you feel like the ethics conversations that we are alluding to are actually happening inside those companies in a meaningful way? Or is it really a separate academics and journalists and some well-meaning data do-gooders over here, but the actual real implementation is happening over here and there's not much overlap between? I think it's a mix. I definitely think there are a lot of concerned people within some of the companies, which is good because they're at the forefront. They're seeing what's actually happening. Whereas, you know, a lot of uh, the academics and journalists and experts you know, see broadly what's happening, but not what's happening day to day inside the company. So I'm glad there are folks pushing for that. And I know people that are passionate about AI ethics and how AI is used that are working within companies like Microsoft and Google. Um, I've been to conferences at both of those companies. Um, and I know that that's of keen interest. And it doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people that disagree, particularly if you look at a company like Google, there's plenty of workers, former workers, uh, outsiders that disagree with the way that Google's handling it. But I know at the same time that they are having a very robust dialogue inside of, of what should they be doing. Um, you know, and there are a lot of genuine concerns inside and out. You know, if you work with, you know, government entity X, you know, what could that lead to if you look with X military? And, you know, I think uh, Microsoft has this outside group, Aether advising it on AI ethics. A lot of companies are trying to figure out where they should have that discussion. Um, and again, there's lots of critics that say they aren't doing enough. They're moving too fast. They're working with the wrong people. And I'm sure we'll get into this. There's also, and this is happening broadly in my coverage area of tech, but explicitly around AI and machine learning is, you know, China as boogeyman. There's always the answer of, you know, well, if we don't do it, China will, um, which regardless of how true it is, is probably a terrible way to make ethical AI decisions. Um, so let's get into that. How real is the threat of China? Is framing it as a threat the right thing to be doing for the way to think about the future for business leaders and government policymakers? I mean, I certainly think an awareness of what's happening is critical. I mean, it, it would be foolish to not be paying attention to how the other big giant society is approaching it. At the same time, I don't think we want to just wholesale adopt their techniques just because that's what's going on. I mean, it is the case that China is going to have more broad AI data because they're willing to um, subject is a harsh word, but, you know, involuntarily uh, include, <laughs> aka subject, their population to a lot of data collection that the rest of the world is going to say, no, people have to consent to that or we're not going to allow that to be collected in the first place. Um, you know, obviously the U.S. is kind of in the middle here, if you will, uh, with Europe much more protective of individual data rights, individual data ownership and strong consent. I'd say the U.S. is maybe weak consent. Consent's kind of required, but it's OK if it's a checkbox that everyone kind of has to check to go forward. And then China, no need for a checkbox. Um, that's a dramatic oversimplification, but uh, useful for understanding sort of the broad positions. So if I were in charge of like AI policy or making recommendations, what I would say is, look, we don't have to emulate China's techniques. I don't think we should, 
Um, but we do have to be aware that that's the context in which they are going to be developing AI. And so how do we develop our algorithms, our machine learning technologies to be able to compete in a world where we're probably not going to have the most data? And is there some way that the U.S. can use its uh, liberal democratic, uh, in lowercase d, lowercase l, uh, uh, nature, can they use that nature to its advantage? So if you think about China as an authoritarian top-down system where they can just say, look, we're going to do this stuff in AI, we're going to collect your data, you can't do anything about it, we, can, we have access to all this data and all these people that we can test this stuff out on and get all this data from, that's their advantage. Is our advantage somehow that if we do this right, we're going to have more people involved in the conversation. That means more people creating different applications for this stuff, but also more people having oversight of the machine to make sure that it does what it needs to do. Is there a liberal democratic advantage that the U.S. could exploit in this uh, in this battle, so to speak? There can be, and that's what I was sort of alluding to. And how do you recognize the landscape and you know take advantage of it as best you can? I mean, I think China is going to be really good at you know developing algorithms and machine learning that answer. Here's what's best for the population. Here's the answer of what's best for the whole. I think where the U.S. stands a good chance of leading is around, you know, here's here's how you apply it. Here's how you know you can optimize for a different value other than the collective good. So maybe that's you know how do you have the most secure whatever? How do you have the most privacy protecting whatever? I think that type of thing is very unlikely to come out of China. Um, I think, you know, again, really asking ourselves what what are some of our goals? What do we want out of these algorithms is critical. Um, and, and where do we want algorithms? I think, you know, we can also be a leader in terms of, you know, balancing human decision making and algorithms. Um, there are areas where I think algorithms can be very powerful. Um, there are areas where they can be very dangerous. And a lot of it is actually not a black and white yes or no. It's sort of a how you do it. And I think we've seen this. And this is the area that I find most interesting and try and report on as much as I can, which is around where are we making mistakes? Where are we either applying algorithms in the wrong context or more often just our algorithms are repeating our human biases? So when you look at something like college admissions, well, college admissions have always been filled with bias. So the idea of having an algorithm making decisions could be a lot better, um, but not if the algorithm's programmed to let uh, Johnny in because his dad gave $12 million for a library, then it's just automating the process that was taking place before algorithms. So what's the gap between the reason why so many of these algorithms are being implemented in what most people would consider the wrong way and, and how to do it right. I mean, is it a matter of education? Is it a matter of more people? I mean, I, I know that journalism plays a role in this because it's about explaining to everybody what's going on in this sector that's going to affect all of us. But it seems like we are prone to making a lot of these mistakes. We are potentially at risk uh, with, with using all this data and creating algorithms that seem more official of locking in biases that we already have across all kinds of lines. So what is... Uh, what are some ways people can actually kind of uh, break through here and do the right thing? Um, I think there's a few different things that are tied in with that that are all important. Um, one, I'll just sort of step back and take the sort of diversity piece of this, which is, you know, w conventional wisdom says, you know, you, your algorithm, your um, approach to things is highly likely to be dictated by who's in the room writing it. So um, the chances of missing bias of creating a bias algorithm of not noticing biases in the training data, which is equally likely 
um, to produce bad results um, is going to vary based on who's in the room. Obviously, it's not universally true. Um, but if you have, and this tends to be the tech industry's problem, a predominantly white, predominantly male group, or in some cases, an all white or an all male group, which is especially problematic, um, that that sort of is the equivalent of going into the decision making process with your blinders on. Um, and it's not to castigate uh, white people or castigate men or castigate white men. It's just, you know, we all have different experiences. So the more different experiences are reflected by the people making decisions in theory. And again, you know, it's not always the case, but in theory, you're going to have uh, a better approach. The other thing I would say that we've learned is um, AI isn't inherently explainable. Um, a lot of the best state of the art machine learning today can work in a black box, but that's not good for fairness. It's not good actually for learning in general. So one of the pushes is you you actually want to design an AI system to be explainable, um, which takes uh, objective work. It takes work. It's not the default. So by default, it would just be a black box and you'd get an answer. If you want an AI system that can explain why it came to the conclusion it did, you have to build that from start. So explainable AI, super important. Again, one is a matter of fairness, two, so we can see where we go wrong, because invariably we will go wrong, but also so we can learn. Um, you know, we will learn better if we have explainable. So that's one thing. Uh, so who's in the room, push for explainable AI, um, and really looking at the at the impacts and, and keeping a close eye on these things. So if we're using an algorithm to determine who's getting into college, who's getting parole, who's getting a loan, looking at the results. Are they having the results we intended or are they actually making an unequal system perpetually unequal and in some cases even worse? And again, it's not casting aspersions on the motives of people except to say, hey, you know, just adding an algorithm doesn't make anything inherently better. Um, I'm totally with you there. And I wonder where you think the most effective pushes are coming from. You said there's a push for some of this, but I wonder, is that push coming from the ground up? Is it coming because companies are afraid of an algorithm going bad down, or doing something that's perceived as biased down the road? And so they have to take precautions now because they see other companies get into trouble in the headlines. Is it coming from regulators and policymakers? Or are they even capable of understanding this? I mean, if you look at some congressional hearings, there's not a lot of confidence that at least at the highest level, politicians even understand the internet, let alone artificial intelligence and machine learning. So where is the pressure coming from and, and how real is that pressure now and in the immediate future, do you think? Um, I think it's coming from a few directions. I think the direction it's coming least from is the one you alluded to. I don't think it's generally coming from, certainly at the national level, U.S. Uh, leaders, except in a few specific areas. You know, I think and again, it's not as much at the national level, but often at the state level, um, you know, around things like government use of facial recognition technology. You know, so in some narrow instances, you have seen regulators take a look. But I think in general, the pressure to do better and to examine best practices is coming from a few different uh, areas. It's certainly coming from the civil liberties communities, um, from activists in those areas, from academics. That's definitely one area, you know, again, you can criticize what the companies do and, you know, plenty of people do, and there's some legitimate room. I, I do think it's important to recognize that some of the push for more fairness, more diversity, more explainability is coming from within these companies. Um, so within Google, within Amazon, within Microsoft, and sometimes at the highest levels. Um, so, you know, I know this is something that Satya Nadella at Microsoft, that's under Pichai at Google, 
do take personally, again, not to say there isn't room to criticize, and certainly Google has gotten a lot of criticism uh, for some of these issues. Um, so their pressure is coming from different places. It's also when we talk about governments, you know, it's more likely to come out of a place like Europe, which has a very strong notion that an individual is the owner of their data. We don't really have that sense. It's very transactional in the US. Like people, you know, would give away their password for a candy bar, studies have shown. And certainly, you know, I, I think people are plenty willing to quickly give away their data. Um, so there aren't as many rules in the US, but we're starting to see some. We're starting to see some modeled on GDPR in Europe. We're seeing some, uh, California has been, again, one of those states pushing for um, more protections around consumer data. And all it takes in, in the US is one big state to do it, and suddenly the cost becomes prohibitive. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some different corners, I would say. When you were mentioning the thing about trading your password for a candy bar, I was picturing exactly the candy bar that I was going to trade for. And I was like, which of my passwords do I not really need that much? I'll enjoy in my case, if for the record. Um, oh, I, I can't. I can't. I, I support you trading your data for a candy bar, but not for coconut. Sorry. OK, well, what, what would what would your candy bar be of choice? Um, hmm, that's a great question. I'm more of a chocolate chip cookie person, but um, probably so, a really nice dark chocolate, maybe with some chili inside. Hmm. That sounds delicious. We're asking the hard. Is that is that a good trade here. for one, two, three, four, I think of oh, dark chocolate with chili. I'm a hundred percent. That's like Gmail password level, in my opinion. Yeah. Um. All right. So, uh, you know, you mentioned European regulators kind of driving a lot of this. There has been a narrative of a potential divide between the U.S. and China, right? The idea that there might be eventually two separate internets. In some ways, there kind of already is. Um, between the U.S. and China. And then if you look at Europe as the third leg of this global stool, the U.S. and Europe are, are, relative, are, are certainly much more linked in terms of internet and in terms of kind of um, uh, cultural or values about the internet and freedom and data privacy, probably more so than China, right? Although I guess you could also say the U.S. is in the middle of the Europe and China. So I'm just curious to your take on what I'm about to ask, which is could, uh, could if, if Europe and the U.S., are relatively linked, but then Europe's driving on AI regulation to a certain extent. Is there any talk of a risk of a divide between Europe and the US? Is there the idea that there could be three internets or three AI regulatory systems that govern kind of the global state? I mean, it is a very active debate. And I do think that's uh, perhaps a risk is how you describe it uh, from the US perspective. I think from European perspective, it, you know, sometimes that's that's seen as a good thing. You know, again, just as we look to China and we say we don't want those policies, uh, Europe often looks at the US uh, and says we don't want those policies. And there actually is a divide. There's a divide right now. Um, there are rules that are actually being contested in European courts over um, you know, where data can be warehoused and what counts and, you know, how the U.S. has to behave to comport with European data regulations. Now, I think the positives for the U.S. are just as the U.S. has to compete in some senses against China, knowing that we're going to have less data access. So, too, Europe has to compete against U.S. and really the entire world, knowing that it's going to have the least data because its privacy practices are even more uh, restrictive than ours. So, you know, I, you could argue the U.S. is kind of like Goldilocks in the sense of, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's too permissive in China. It's too restrictive in Europe. Um, it certainly does position us as a more likely ally of Europe, um, although we've certainly tested our allyship with Europe in the last few years on the political front on the basic approach to data. 
you know, it's hard to imagine Europe aligning itself with China. Um, and we are seeing a real split uh, between US and China. This is something I've written a lot about. I wrote, led the newsletter last week with an article on the great decoupling in tech of the US and China. And, and it's, um, to me, it's, it's still sad. Uh, you know, you can have differences without saying that the best way to uh, deal with those differences is to just build an entirely separate um, ecosystem. And I think, you know, we had this highly interdependent technology ecosystem where a lot of the chips and software were developed in the United States. Most of the manufacturing was done in China. Um, and that's the way we'd operated for my whole career. And, you know, in just a few years, we've moved very far down the path of not only are the US and China further isolating themselves, but sort of by necessity. I mean, if you are a startup in China or the US, why would you ever build a company that's dependent on technology from the other, knowing how easily it can be cut off? That's my big worry is that even if calmer heads prevail and the US and China find a way to work together, will the, will the companies themselves ever want to risk being dependent, mm -hmm. knowing that the next leader in either country could push things uh, in the wrong direction? Speaking of massive global shifts, uh, we haven't talked about COVID-19 yet, but we're both working at home for a reason. What do you think is the COVID-19 and its influence uh, on the tech space has been covered extensively. What do you think is an underreported tech or AI trend that COVID-19 is driving? Um, one of the things is a forced expansion of algorithmic use. So um, one of the most public examples is um, uh, content moderation. So you know, Facebook, Google with YouTube, Twitter had always relied on algorithms to do the bulk, the, the masses of their work and used humans to handle the edge cases, the most sensitive things. Uh, but what COVID-19 brought about was a massive expansion of the reliance on algorithms to do it. And the reasons uh, were not just because you and I got sent to work from home, that's a piece of it. But where it really came in is a lot of the human content moderators were contractors and they were designed to work together because they were handling sensitive data, personal data, and they didn't actually work for Google and Twitter and stuff. They were contractors. They could only do their jobs within the four walls of their contractors' offices where there was heavy security protection, et cetera. Um, so it wasn't a job, unlike a lot of tech jobs that easily translated to, okay, now just do it from your home computer. Long-winded way of saying, a lot more content moderation is being handled automatically, is being handled by algorithms. That's actually a great test case. I think we can learn a lot from seeing, from going, as long as we go back and look at how were the decisions, what were the blind spots? Um, I think it's a great way to learn from how algorithms are doing. And let's not forget, algorithms can be really good at this. You know, I think critics of AI um, and critics of machine learning underestimate just how useful a good algorithm can be. A good algorithm with good training data can make society fairer, more just, can spot biases that humans didn't even notice. But a bad algorithm really, again, just codifies and, um, you know, uh, I'll use an annoying big word, perseverates, but, you know, repeats uh, this sort of bad behavior that used to take, we used to have to train each biased judge uh, and there was an opportunity in each generation to have an unbiased judge. If we mm -hmm. uh, don't do that with algorithms, the algorithms will perpetuate uh, biases. Um, in the waning moments here, 
two questions for you. One, are you inspired by uh, sci-fi at all? A lot of the people I talk to, especially kind of tech entrepreneurs, are inspired by science fiction at all. Uh, does that play into it at all as you kind of see some elements of sci-fi maybe coming true in different shapes in your work, or is that not? Um, I think it informs the way we look at things for good and bad. I'm not a big sci-fi person, but, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, that isn't what creates our mind eye of what mm -hmm. algorithms are, of what robots are. And we haven't really talked about, you know, the difference between machine learning and very specific things and sort of further off notion of artificial general intelligence, which um, is probably good because yeah. I don't think any of us really knows what that world's going to look like. We're we're still pretty far from that. Yeah. Um, well, but that's where but we should be next, setting actually. rules. Yeah. yeah. We should be setting rules now. Um, and we can use our sci-fi generated experience to um, at least know where we should look for the demons. So that's my final question to you. On a scale of one to never, how long until you think, just taking a guess, uh, until we reach some kind of artificial general intelligence? Um, I think it will, you know, I, I tend to be in the middle on a lot of these things. I think it won't be as soon as some people worry, but it will be sooner than people think. Um, I do have questions after 2020 of whether it will happen uh, before we uh, make the planet inhospitable to human life uh, or find another way to wipe ourselves out. But, it, you know, I don't think of it as... Uh, so far off in the horizon, in part because technology and I think, you know, our human knowledge is, you know, accelerating. Um, but I don't think it's imminent. I think we are teaching today those systems how they're going to learn. We're setting the guardrails. We're setting the rules. Um, so there is an important role to be played now, even if we're quite a ways off from uh, computers that are just, you know, making decisions on their own. You mentioned Elon Musk. We mentioned Elon Musk toward the beginning of this conversation. Maybe he will take you to Mars and you'll be safe from the devastation of the planet uh, in the next several decades. So who knows? Um, Ina Fried, you are the chief technology correspondent at Axios. Your newsletter is called Login. How can people sign up for Login, by the way? Thank you. Yeah, it's free. I do it Monday through Friday with a great team and just go to getlogin.axios.com and you can subscribe to login as well as all of our other newsletters around health, science, sports, politics, etc. Well, Ina, thank you so much for joining us here on Machine Meets World today. I really love this conversation. And thank you so much, the person who is watching and or listening to this. Really appreciate it. Please like us on LinkedIn, connect, share. You know what to do. I am James Kotecki and that has been What Happens When Machine Meets World.